This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. After Tesla had almost gone bankrupt in 2018, he went into a catatonic state. But all of a sudden, Tesla is worth more than the next nine car companies combined. And in the previous six months, he had shot up, I think, 33 orbital missions and become the richest person on the planet. And I thought, okay, he's now going to rest on his laurels a bit. He said, no, I got to keep taking risks. I need that drama. If there's calm seas, I've got to sail to the storm. And that's when he starts buying Twitter. That's Walter Isaacson talking, of course, about Elon Musk. Walter has written brilliant biographies of people as varied as Leonardo da Vinci, Steve Jobs, and Albert Einstein. And now his new book, an international bestseller, is the result of Walter spending two years shadowing Musk as his subject launched rockets built electric cars, decided to save humanity, behaved badly, became the richest man in the world, bought Twitter and turned it into X. Phew. What a book, Walter. Hey, thank you. What, what a book. And you got one of the most interesting people in the, on the public stage to be the subject of a really detailed look at his life. How, how did you do that? What's the inside story? Well, you know, like you, I'm interested in science and technology. And I thought, here's a dude who's shooting rockets into space, relanding the boosters unlike any other company or country can do. And he's moving us into the transition to electric vehicles and solar roofs and power packs. I thought, wow, technology, uh, it'll be sort of like the Jennifer Doudna book or the Steve Jobs book. So I started uh, thinking about it and a mutual friend put me in touch with him. And we talked for about an hour and a half. And I said to him, you know, if I'm going to do this book, I don't want it to be like any other biography of our time where it's based on 10 or 15 or even 20 interviews. I want to have two years right by your side at all times, nothing off limits, uh, whenever I want to come out and travel around with you. And he went, okay. Wow, that's pretty odd. Well, here's the other caveat. I don't want you to have any control over the book. I want, I'm not even going to let you read it in advance. And he went, okay. And I was with some mutual friends, people you know, because I was their house guest, my wife and I. And I went back downstairs, the people there are gathered. And uh, all of a sudden they're going, oh my God, you know, what are you doing? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, Musk just tweeted out, Walter's doing my biography. I mean, here's a guy who doesn't need to take the risk of having somebody by his side at all times. And he thought it was kind of cool to say, let me just open it up to, uh, to somebody who's going to see warts and all, everything about what I do. You know, when you say he takes risks, most of us think of people we know who take risks, like they climb a mountain or they put a big bet down in the pot in a poker game. But the thing that struck me more than almost anything else in the book was the picture you included of him standing against a board holding balloons so a blindfolded knife thrower could throw knives at him. Was that, was that just a gag photo or was that real? No, totally real. It was one of his birthday parties. Uh, 
one of the co-founders of what became PayPal with them, you know, Peter Thiel, famous guy, said most entrepreneurs understand risk, they calculate risk, said Musk is crazy. He actually <laughs> seeks risk, even risk for its own sake. And so that was at one of the birthday parties that Tallulah Riley, his second wife, the British actress, threw. And there was a blind uh, knife thrower. And there's Elon Musk putting a pink balloon right in his, you know, below his crotch, between his legs, and letting the blind knife thrower throw a knife. This is not a risk that has any upside to it. <laughs> and between you and me and the rest of our listeners, it's got quite a bit of a downside to it. <laughs> and yet there's that addiction to risk. But here's the larger issue. That risking taking has made him sometimes dangerous at times, certainly impulsive, especially when it comes to Twitter. It's unnecessary. But it also allows him to do things like shoot off rockets and try to reland them or move us to electric vehicles. And he says we used to be very much a nation of risk takers. Whether you came here on the Mayflower or you came across the Rio Grande or whatever, there was some risk. And the risk taking is why we got to the moon and other things. But 50 years ago, we quit trying to get to the moon. And 12 years ago, after the shuttle had exploded, we quit taking the risk and we quit, NASA quit and Boeing quit, trying even to send astronauts into orbit from the United States. Nobody can do that. But he can. He's been able to do dozens of missions to the space station, reland the rockets and reuse them, even missions with astronauts sending them into space. And uh, he's careful, especially when it comes to risk to humans, but he feels that's why Boeing and that's why NASA and that's why General Motors and Ford have become so sclerotic is that they are unable, that they're more regulators these days than there are risk takers and more referees than there are innovators. One of the things we ought to talk about is the seminal experiences he had that really seem to account for so much of his behavior. For instance, the camp his family sent him to. Was that a common kind of camp in South Africa at the time? Yeah, it was called Veld School. It's a wilderness survival camp. And the first time Elon went there, he was scrawny and socially awkward, said he had Asperger's, couldn't relate to people. And they encouraged the kids to beat each other up and take the food. It's a sort of survival camp. And uh, he loses 10 pounds, gets beaten up badly. But the next time he goes, a few years later, he's actually grown. He's almost six feet tall. And he said, I learned one thing, which is people may beat me up, but if I punch them as hard as I possibly could in the nose, they would remember that. And it's almost a metaphor because he's very confrontational and pugnacious, far too much so at times. But ingrained in him was being beaten up as a kid and having no friends and having a father who took the side of the bullies and told him he would be worthless. The image of him being beaten so badly, after which his father makes him stand there for an hour and a half while he berates him and takes the side of the bully. And the relationship with his father seems to have continued to this day to be an unhappy one. Yeah, he's cut his father off. He doesn't speak to his father. His father's had two children 
by the person who was, you know, his father's stepdaughter. So, I mean, it just causes Bus to go into slow, quiet, sometimes tearful uh, reflection. We all have a few demons from our childhood, I guess. Uh, I don't have that many because I was born and raised here in New Orleans and we just made the Demons March and Mardi Gras parade. We didn't pay much <laughs> attention to them. But the question is, do you harness your demons? I mean, let's look at some of the great people, in starting with Leonardo da Vinci, who are misfits growing up. Sometimes you harness your demons and sometimes your demons harness you. And the book is about both of those things when it comes to Elon Musk. It doesn't excuse some of his bad behavior, but I think there is some correlation, especially in the case of the people I've written about, of having certain rough, misfit, I don't fit in experiences in childhood and having to prove things later in life. I can see where the influence of the kids who bullied him and his reaction to them and his father's bullying him could lead to his going into what people have come to call, people around him have come to call his demon mode. Who came up with that expression first, by the way? I think it was Grimes, or at least she uses it most, uh, Claire Boucher, the performance artist known as Grimes, mother of three of his children. And you can watch... First of all, it was true of Errol Musk, great engineer. This is the father, uh, sometimes a very charming guy, but it was almost like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He'd switch into this dark, cold, brutal, not yelling or raising his voice or physically brutal, but just cold lecturing. And Elon Musk does that as well. And I've been at uh, meetings with him, and I've been at dinner, you know, where Grimes is there, and suddenly he'll get triggered, sometimes by somebody saying you can't do that, or the regular, or uh, that's impossible, you're, what? and I remember when uh, Grimes leaned over to me at one point and said, demon mode, it's about to come on, and then suddenly you would see it happen. Now, one of the things that Grimes says is demon mode is really unpleasant to be around. It can be cold and callous, but also demon mode is what gets shit done, she says. Several people say that, including you in the book. And you, you've been criticized, I know, by a few people who feel you haven't come out in plain words enough and said he does bad things or he's a bad guy or something like that. And you've stuck to... Well, I'll let you say your own defense. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, let me say it in words of one syllable. He does bad things. He's a bad guy. He's callous at times. He can be cruel at times and cold at times. He's certainly talked about having Asperger's, but he's on that spectrum where he's very bad at picking up emotional cues, and he can be an absolute jerk or... To use a technical term, it begins with A. And I think I say that pretty clearly at times in the book. So I try to tell a lot of fast-paced stories. And if you watch what he does to some of the people at the Starbase launch site when they aren't moving fast enough, you can certainly see he can be a cold jerk. But he's also, especially when it comes to Tesla and Starbase, when he's driving people nuts, he's also making sure that unlike Boeing and NASA, he can get this rocket into orbit. It's not an excuse for being a jerk. I mean, I, I, I don't think you should be, need to be a jerk, 
But I also think that every now and then you have complex characters and it's useful to be able to hold a few different things in our heads, which is, boy, that's pretty amazing. And also, boy, that's pretty awful. And I tell you stories that make you feel both. And I'm pretty clear about what I feel. But uh, I don't want to be somebody who makes everybody either a hero or a villain. I mean, as Shakespeare teaches us, that ain't the way it is. But I think what I what I pause at is your intimation that it could be that you can't get this stuff done unless you do behave like a jerk. He's been able to do it, but you've, I've also heard you say that Jennifer Doudna, who helped come up with CRISPR, and Ben Franklin, two people you've done biographies on, were able to do great things, world-changing things, without being jerks. So, absolutely, it, it may have aided him, but is, is is it a necessary component to get things done? No, and even when I wrote about when I wrote about Steve Jobs, Wired magazine did a cover, which is, "Do you have to be a jerk?" If they use the more <laughs> technical term that begins with A, and it was about the book, and he was rough on people. And no, I mean the whole point of a biography is it's not a how-to book. It's not here's seven lessons for what you should do. And so what you got to do is figure out, can you be a disruptor? Uh, And if you're going to be a disruptor, you have to be kind of disruptive as a personality at times, but you don't have to be a jerk. And that's where I try to show through the stories where he does things that are both unnecessary and should be a cautionary tale for the reader. John McNeil in the book, who was uh, president of Tesla for a while under Musk, he said, I sometimes felt that the price you had to pay to get some of these things done was to be as hard and tough as he would. And he said, it's a high price to pay. And then McNeil says, and if I had the choice, I wouldn't pay that price. It's not worth it. But each reader is going to have to decide uh, how, how much do you want to push and how can you do it How can you be a disruptor and be disruptive without being such a jerk? One thing that occurs to me as you say that is that it may be that with the goals he sets, which are extreme, far-reaching, getting to Mars, he thinks he's going to get there in his lifetime. And uh, the rest of us think maybe 100 or 200 years from now. Maybe he can't get there any quicker than that unless he's ruthless because he set a goal that's unbelievably hard. But I know he's driven by that. I'll give you one example of a late Friday night at uh, the launch pad for Starship, the biggest movable object ever made, his newest rocket. And uh, it was, as I say, a late Friday night, and he's walking the assembly line, then the launch pad, and suddenly demon mode hits. He gets really dark, and he says, why are there only two people working on the launch pad? And this guy, Andy Krebs, great guy running the launch pad, said, well, it's a late Friday night, and we don't even have a launch schedule for a long time. Musk goes berserk, and he keeps saying, we will never get to Mars with that attitude. 
We will never get to Mars in my lifetime unless we have a fierce urgency as our operating principle, and we're all in. And he orders what he calls a surge, which means he says, by tomorrow night, I want 200 or so people working on this site. They have to fly in from Cape Canaveral and Los Angeles, and they surge, and they get Starship stacked on that launch pad within six days. It was almost pointless because they didn't have a authorization to launch. But he said, without, the, without me being the forcing mechanism, we will never get to Mars fast enough. When we come back from our break, Walter Isaacson talks about one of the surprising secrets of Elon Musk's success. He doesn't just manage his companies. He micromanages them. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is to stimulate scientific research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, to strengthen the relationship between science and society, and to honor scientific discoveries with the Kavli Prize. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Walter Isaacson. Tesla and SpaceX are just two of the some half-dozen companies Elon Musk controls. It's interesting to me how he has such an intimate knowledge of every detail of each one of these businesses. I pictured him, I think he was lying under the car as it went by on the assembly line. And he said, there are four bolts there. Why did it have to be four bolts? Why can't there be two or three? And he said, I think he said on that occasion, we'll never get to Mars with four bolts. Well, you know, part of what he does is he has a feel for like a lot of people you've interviewed and, well, going back to the great engineers, for material science, for forces, for how thick a piece of stainless steel in the dome of the rocket has to be or how many bolts you need on the undercarriage of the car. And they say, well, the safety team told us we needed this number of bolts. And he says, no, the force through the chassis would be directed this way, and you can do it, you know, with this number of bolts. Now, that is part of an algorithm that he has for making rockets and making cars, which step one is question every requirement. If somebody says it's a rule or requirement, say, who made that rule? Why? Tell me the, there's no rule in this world except for the laws of physics. Everything else is just a recommendation. And it goes on, and part two of that algorithm is delete. Get rid of that unnecessary bolt. And this is why his rockets get things into orbit, and they cost one-tenth of what a Boeing rocket costs that still hasn't been able to do a test flight sending people to the uh, space station. What are the other steps in the algorithm? (laughs) The algorithm is question every requirement, uh, delete, 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 simplify, uh, speed up the process, and then only then do you automate the process. Because you don't want to automate it to do things that are time-consuming. When he had the crisis in 2018 and it looked like Tesla was about to go under and it was bankrupt and he was in a bipolar meltdown, he realized that they were using too many robots on the assembly line that were holding things up 
to do things that a human could do pretty instantly. And so they went around late one night with a can of spray paint and put a big X, his favorite letter, on a lot of the robotic machinery and said, just rip it out. Don't automate until you've uh, simplified and deleted all you can. And this grows out of something he learned early on with Tesla, which was don't just build the machine that you want to use, that you want to sell. Build the machine that builds that machine. In other words, control the manufacturing process. Absolutely. And there's another thing that I think the United States has lost the fingertip feel for, which is we used to be a nation that knew how to manufacture things. And then over the past 40, 50 years, auto companies, you know, which used to make things in Detroit and on assembly, outsourced up to 70% of what they were doing. Even Steve Jobs, a beautiful designer of products that would make your heart sing, when he finished uh, in the design studio doing these products, it was uh, sent off to China where the manufacturing was. Musk feels that making the manufacturing line is just as important as designing the product. And right now he's trying to make a $25,000 both robocar and then global inexpensive car He's not just focusing on the design of the car. 90% of his time is the stations on the assembly line and how it's almost like designing a microchip, how you put them stacked up and in order together. And he makes sure that his designers have their desks, not in some design studio too far away, but as much of the time as possible, they are engineers facing the assembly line. So when there's a holdup, because a headlamp is a little hard to do, or there's a felt pad under a battery, the designer iterates and understands on an hourly basis how you make innovations and improvements, which is something you can't do if you're outsourcing your manufacturing. That's such an interesting thing because it takes into account the communication of the essential problems. When the designers are in another building, and the people on the assembly lines recognize a time-wasting procedure. There's no hotline between the two of them. No, there's not an iterative feedback loop. And Musk says, you know, it's like he got a hot stove. If your hand is on it and it's you pull your hand off right away. But if some it's somebody else's hand in a different city, you say, okay, you know, you don't you don't <laughs> react. Franz von Holzhausen, the unbelievably great designer of Tesla for almost 20 years now, is stuck by uh, Musk's side. At one point, they were having problems with the assembly line and the quality control. And Musk being Musk had like fired three quality control engineers up at the Fremont, uh, California plant. And he asked then Franz, he said, get out of the design studio. You're in charge of quality and control on the assembly line. And he and Franz would walk that assembly line till three in the morning. And uh, Franz would be able to see how you iterate, as you put it, between manufacturing and design. Let me, let me switch to empathy. Let me think about empathy with regard to the things we've been talking about. Everybody says about him that he's short on empathy or devoid of it. But empathy, I've found, has a lot of different meanings for different people. And for some people, it means an automatic response to what another person 
is going through emotionally, picking up the cues and then acting in a way that helps the other person. But there's another way of looking at empathy that may be applicable to him, which is that it's more of a tool. You get information about how the other person is feeling so you can use it to your benefit and not necessarily to theirs. What do you think about that? This is a complicated uh, theme in the book because he does lack empathy. And as he said, he's on the autism spectrum and he doesn't naturally feel empathy. He's got to do it in the way you described, which is I receive information and I try to act on it. So he's not good at balancing the need to be nice to people, which he should be around him, versus being nice to humanity, which he thinks is his larger epic goal. And uh, I think that lack of empathy, he loves playing Polytopia. You and I are probably not part of the age cohort that plays Polytopia each night, but it's probably the most awesome levels of the game, uh, video game on your phone you can play. But one of the lessons of Polytopia is empathy is not your friend. You have to keep the mission as your goal, not getting people around you to love you. I'm not excusing that. I mean, you know, this is where I get the criticism. It's like, well, he's not nice and you're excusing it. No, but sometimes when you try to explain something, that's different from excusing it. Hmm. Hmm. You made me think of the time when he finally did take over Twitter. He was at the top of the world. Picture on Time magazine, cover. Person of the year. The, the richest person in the world. But it, it wasn't enough for him. Well, it was almost too much for him, which is he does not like to savor success. Get back to the video game. He says, whenever I succeed at one level of the game... I have a compulsion to put my chips back on the table to play the next level of the game. So I remember early in 2022, as you said, he he had just won every level of the game after Tesla had almost gone bankrupt in 2018. He went into a catatonic state. But all of a sudden, Tesla is worth more than the next nine car companies combined. And in the previous six months, he had shot up, I think, 33 orbital missions and landed the rocket safely and become the richest person on the planet. And I thought, okay, he's now going to rest on his laurels a bit. He said, no, I got to keep taking risks. I need that drama. If there's calm seas, I've got to sail to the storm. And that's when he starts buying Twitter. Uh, He does it for many reasons. It's the world's ultimate playground. So the kid who got beaten up on the playground gets to own it. It also fulfills the mission he had 20 years earlier, when he created X.com, which ends up becoming PayPal, but he wanted it to be a payment system for content connected to social media. He says, well, now I can do what X.com should have been if I buy Twitter and rename it X. And uh, he just gets a compulsion even after he does Twitter and you know he's trying to wrestle with it. He decides at the end of the book, to start an AI company as well. He's now running seven companies because he keeps having this compulsion not to become complacent, to become all-in, hardcore, and a fierce urgency, which is just uh, unsettling, but he kind of likes being unsettled. And it's true, by the way, 
of his emotional relations. He's only had one uh, relationship that was really normal and not filled with drama. That's with his second wife, Tallulah Riley, the actress. And he kind of said, I love her, she's wonderful, but I just need more drama in my life. As his brother says, he's a drama addict. Somebody said, was it his brother who said that, no, I think he said that if he doesn't, if he doesn't have to fight for survival, if he doesn't have to fight for his life, he gets unable to make much progress. He needs... He's unnerved. He, he, he's got to have to fight for his life. He gets the energy to do it at all from that. It energizes him. And as you say, I'm not a psychiatrist. Uh, I don't try to play one. But it comes out of that wilderness survival camp as a kid where by the second time around... He's energized by the notion of always being in a struggle. And this makes him a character who is absolutely fascinating to me, but he's complex and is, doesn't fit into our normal categories, especially this day and age, which is uh, going on talk radio and saying he's a hero, he's a villain, he's mm. wonderful, he's evil. Well, no, he's like the most complex of all Shakespeare characters. When did he come up with the idea that he was going to save the world, that humanity, humanity needed him as a messiah? I think he says it, and his brother says it, and his mother says it, that as a really lonely child with no friends, he would sit in the corner of a bookstore or a corner of the library, and all he would do was read the comics, the superhero comics, you know, all alone. Uh, they were trying to save the world, but they were wearing their underpants on the outside, and they looked ridiculous. He said, but they were still trying to save the world, and that's almost a metaphor for him. He imagines that he looks ridiculous. He's willing to do things that we find, you know, head-snapping, silly, or ridiculous or bad, and yet he still believes he's trying to save the world in the process, or humanity. His three epic missions are making sure that humanity is a spacefaring civilization, that we go to other planets. Number two, sustainable energy on Earth through solar roofs and batteries and electric vehicles. And number three, making sure from having read Isaac Asimov's robot books that our robots don't turn on us, that AI is safe. I thought all of these epic quests, when he would say them to me, were sort of the type of pontification you do on a podcast or with a team building exercise, or maybe to somebody writing about you. But over and over again, I'd hear him say those mantras to himself, whether he was walking the factory line or the Starbase launch pad or anywhere, and so he would say, we have to get to the world of electric vehicles. We have to get to Mars. We have to make robots safe. And so whether or not it's true, he believes it's true that he's guided by these epic missions. And I explore the extent to which it's true or not in the book. It made me wonder about his ability to choose a path, a goal, that will save humanity and then decide on his own that we all have to follow that path whether we want to or not. 
And we're all, all, if we work for them, we're always subject to the threat of either you're in it hardcore or your resignation will be accepted. Yeah, those are the phrases he used, and he's all hardcore. And we have two types of ways of approaching work, if you run a company, and frankly, the ways of approaching life. And maybe even some of us at different times of our lives have different mm. approaches where I remember you know, being pretty hardcore in my 20s. And I remember going to visit Twitter when it was a sweet company with rooms that were designed for psychological safety and mental health days which, off. Which I remember you'd quote him saying, psychological safety is our enemy. Exactly. And he feels <laughs> that way. He feels a fierce urgency is uh, what you need as a necessity. And psychological safety is the enemy of being hardcore and all in. Well, there's some people who are that way, and maybe it's good that there are companies that are that way. It's also good that there are companies for people who have a more desire for work-life balance and for smelling the flowers. But if you want to be that type of person, you're not going to end up working for Musk. And I watch how some people fall off the train because it's moving too fast. But some people are thrilled by the mission, and even when they get off the train, they said, okay, I'm getting back on the train. I'd rather be burned out than be bored. Mm-hmm. I, know, I guess I have a personal wish that some person like Musk will emerge with the same drive not to have war as your default mode. Well, combat is his default mode at times, but he'll go into inspirational mode or deep engineering mode where he really cares about the careful design of product, and sometimes a silly mode where he's watching Monty Python videos. He has quite a few personalities. But the thing about biography, as I said earlier, is not a how-to book. It's not seven ways to be a great leader or the 12 secrets to innovation. A biography tells you about a real person in real time. Some of them are genuinely nice and sweet. You mentioned Jennifer Doudna, who you know well. Uh, or Ben Franklin out of history. Some are all in and hardcore, like a Steve Jobs or a Bill Gates when he first did Microsoft. And as you read these books, you should first of all say, let me, let me, let me just ride along with this story. This is a fast-paced, fascinating, I hope, story. A lot of quick chapters because that's the way his mind jumps around. But I'm not going to use it as a guide. I'm going to use it both as an inspiration for certain great missions and certain great intensities of focus, but also I'm going to use it as a cautionary tale for how not to treat people. And you're right. The hope is you get to a certain type of person who can have the drive for epic missions, who can have a great focus on getting uh, executing on things, but also can avoid the dark character flaws in some of these people. And biographies are meant to both inspire you and to caution you. At the end of your book, you talk about a huge rocket that fails. And it was such an important program that I think your editor said, what are you going to do now? Are you going to include this? Is this the way to end the book? And you said it was a perfect ending, right? It's perfect. It's a metaphor for him, which is it didn't fail. 
it got up into space for three minutes, and then it explodes. It's just like his life. <laughs> Success, rubble in the wake. First three Falcon rockets he shoots after creating SpaceX explode. But you're willing to take the risk, and you have an iterative process, and you learn from it. And if I wrote a book that said, man, here's how he did cars, here's how he did rockets, it was always a success, I would be untrue to who he is as a character because he does leave rubble in his wake. There is burning debris because of his intensity, and that's what happens in April with the launch of Starship, this biggest rocket, this biggest movable object ever made. But you know what, Alan? Uh, I don't know when this podcast comes out, but sometime by the end of October or the beginning of November is the second launch attempt of Starship. I predict it'll get further up than three minutes. I predict it may not get into orbit. But someday, after a few failures and some rubble, Starship is going to launch, and it's something bigger than any rocket, of course, anybody has ever made. It can carry 100 people on space missions, and it's something that neither Boeing or NASA could possibly pull off. And even though it explodes in April after three minutes of launch, and even though it'll go up again, I hope by the end of October or sometime in November, eventually that's the only way we're going to get humanity to be a spacefaring civilization is to take risks, get things up, maybe have them leave some rubble in the rake and explode, but learn from it and keep trying again. That's a risk-taking that we used to be as a nation. Well, if you're still shadowing him when he goes to Mars, I'll wave, <laughs> I'll wave to you from my telescope. <laughs> you know what? Being a biographer means you get to see some really amazing and sometimes disconcerting uh, people. But we who are the Boswells should not confuse ourselves to think we're the Dr. Johnsons. I'm never going to get a rocket going to Mars. But I hope this book does show why GM and Ford could not get us into the era of electric vehicles, but some intensity he could. Likewise, Boeing and NASA can't get astronauts to the space station, he can. But also, why being so cold and callous is not necessary to that. And we got to hold both those things in our head. Well, you tell such Wonderful stories, really engaging stories. I didn't want to put the book down, and I, I'm grateful to you for those stories and for the insights you gave me into not only the nature of Elon Musk, but human nature. And you raise questions that are really important questions to answer if we're going to try to solve truly big problems. It's been a wonderful conversation. I'm not going to ask you our usual seven questions because you answered them the last time you were on the show, when we talked about Jennifer Doudna and a couple of other people you've done the biographies on. So people should l listen to that show again if their taste is inspired by this. And I and just am so grateful to you. I know you must be going through a really rough schedule now. Oh, no, yeah, I'm down here in New Orleans. We're going out to dinner, Kathy and me, tonight. Uh, you know, 
I'm not like Elon Musk. I don't quite have that all-in intensity, and that's why I like getting down here in my hometown and making sure I go to Galatoire's on date night with my wife. So I'll never get rockets to Mars, but <laughs> I try not to be as intense, and I look forward to seeing you again. Because, you know, what you do, which is explaining the beauty of science and technology, that's another thing that our society needs, which is to realize that science and engineering and technology are beautiful, just like lines of poetry are beautiful, and we should all appreciate both the poetry of our universe and the science of our universe. Well said. Thank you. Thank you, Walter. Good to see you again. Good to see you again, my friend. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring this episode. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. Subjects of Walter Isaacson's biographies include Leonardo da Vinci, Ben Franklin, Albert Einstein, Steve Jobs, and most recently, Jennifer Doudna, the co-inventor of the powerful gene editing tool CRISPR. You can check out my conversation with Walter about that book and hear his answers to the seven questions in an episode we posted in June 2020, as it happens just when he was embarking on his adventures with Elon Musk. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohini, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. This is the last episode of Season 22, so as always, Graham and I will be back next week to give you some glimpses of Season 23. It's filled with great communicators. First up is someone you won't want to miss if, like me, you sometimes have a little problem remembering where you put your keys. Frank Felberbaum, whose email handle is Mr. Memory, has spent a lifetime training people's memories. Memory is a skill like every other skill. It's like thinking, reading, uh, writing, dancing, singing, uh, giving a speech. Uh, it's like all your other skills, except for one thing. All your other skills are based on memory. So your memory is at the crux of every other skill that you have. So if you want to improve all your other skills, and enhance and accelerate them, all you have to do is improve one skill, your memory. In an episode full of tips on how to improve your memory, including where you put your keys, Frank kicks off season 23 on Halloween. Meanwhile, check in next week for our season preview. Bye-bye for now. <laughs>